So this weekend, I'm going up to Minneapolis, and on the route that we take, we always go past this little town called Mountain Lake, Minnesota, and every time I have to laugh a little bit, because there's no mountain and there's no lake. It was as if somebody would have named Sioux Center Palm Springs or something similar. There's an irony to it. Maybe they see something in their own backyard. I don't see. I don't know. How we look at things, though, determines and shapes what they are. John was talking about what he sort of experienced with the Lord in his own prayer time, what this, this idea of being alive and life. I'm struck again and again, and we'll see it again in the text today, that the number one command throughout the book of Revelation is the simple verb, look. Like, John wants to tell every young believer who's struggling in their world, things are not as they seem. Look. It's like he's leaning in further and further with all 41 repetitions of this command in the book. No, like lean in and look. Like look, look at it again. It's not what you think it is. This is such a hopeful word for every follower of Christ who's in a world and in a time where we have to be able to see past just the presenting problem. What is the real reality behind all of that? Take his verb, look. Look. Literally turn your neck around in different directions and look around you in this room a minute. We pass everything by so quickly, we get a, a quick glance at things often on the surface. Now look without your eyes. What do you feel in this room? Look even deeper with your heart. What do you sense? There are realities at play in this room beyond what even your eyes can see. And I think this command to look is to look into the deeper heart of things, to look at the real realities, to look at the motivations of hearts, to look at what really drives decisions and not just what we present on the outside. The one who has eyes like blazing fire is looking into us. He's searching hearts and minds. John talked about our eyes having light, being able to illuminate the places where we go and what we see and what we become in that space. I think the number one answer whenever I've asked anybody on this campus walking around, how are you doing in the past week? That's usually my typical greeting with people. I walk by somebody, how are you doing? And I can tell when the answer isn't real, not only because of just the wording, but usually there's this big breath where it's like, good. Right, like their breathing betrays their words, and you're like, you're lying, right? You're not, you're not doing well. As we pray before we open this text and ask God to open our eyes to see this, what I want you to do is to do something a little different in this prayer as we walk into this text. And that is, I learned a little while back that the idea of folding hands and closing eyes in prayer is actually rather new in Christian history. The belief was it first came about for unruly Sunday school children so that they would simply behave in their place. But up until then, for a long period of time, people simply prayed with their eyes open. In Revelation 4 and 5, there's a scene of the heavenly throne room and the creatures have eyes all over them. Which is so different because when Isaiah in Isaiah 6 saw the heavenly throne room, everybody covered their eyes. But now because of Christ and his presence there, it's like they can't have enough eyes. They can't drink it in enough. They can't look deeply enough. They cannot pull their eyelids open wide enough to drink in enough of the presence of Christ when they are with him. 
And so as we pray today and ask to come into this text and ask God to open our eyes, I want you to not close your eyes. I want you to not fold your hands. I want you to find a posture of just openness and join what a lot of Christian history would have done and just try to awaken all of our senses and allow God to speak into all of them. Will you pray with me? God, open our eyes to see you and to see you new. That your light would come through us into the situations where you place us. And that we would be through our eyes a reflection of what it is that you are. Help our eyes to see the truer realities beyond what is physically present. To know how to minister in those places and to know how to be light in new ways. And Father, we can only do this because of your Holy Spirit who is within us. And a renewing of our minds and our lives by the washing of the word. And so we submit ourselves to it and we say, Holy Spirit, have your way. In this time and in us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been walking this last little while through these different seven letters to the seven churches. And now we're on to the sixth. And we're going to talk about... Philadelphia, which oddly enough, kind of like Mountain Lake, Minnesota, was an ironic name given what's taking place at this point in time, because this is not the city of brotherly love for the Christians who are living there. As remember, as we work our way through this sort of chiasm of messages to the churches, now we come back out to Philadelphia and we find the commonalities that it has also with Smyrna. And you'll see and notice that right here, Philadelphia doesn't have a but I have this against you. And so these two churches are the ones that actually seem to be doing the absolute best. Which is really odd if you think about it because the truth is, is that this church was not that big or very impressive at all. In fact, this was the smallest, the youngest, and the weakest by a landslide of all seven churches. But Jesus doesn't have anything negative to say to them. It's almost as if God is really good at doing things in weakness and in small places. So anybody who's feeling like, good, but if you're feeling kind of weak, it's often that time in the semester, maybe you've got other stuff even going on at home. It's hard to be away from that. Maybe you've got uh, difficulties in a friendship or in a relationship right now. Maybe you're just sort of tired. Maybe you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed. Maybe you're wondering how you're even going to get stuff done. I loved this letter this week because I felt like it came at such a good time, speaking into a little church that felt completely overwhelmed in the world that it was in. Let me show you what I mean. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. When he opens, no one can shut, and when he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have 
so that no one will take your crown. And those who are victorious, I will make pillars in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, obviously, from this text, there's conflict taking place between the Jews who are in this community and the young Christians who are there. Now, just to make sure you understand, this isn't like modern day, um, the way our cities are set up, where there's sort of just a, a multitude of different churches on different church corners. To understand the place that these Christians would have felt, this is how N.T. Wright describes it in, in his commentary. We should not imagine a church on one street corner and a synagogue on another, as in many cities today. We should imagine a Jewish community of several thousand with its own buildings and community life, and with a church of probably two or three dozen at the most, holding on to the risky, improbable, and extreme, holding on to the highly improbable and extremely risky claim that the God of Israel had raised Jesus from the dead. So we're talking about a church that is incredibly young in size. N.T. Wright suggesting to us, and most scholars would agree, that maybe a couple dozen at the most is the size of this church in a city where there are literally thousands of Jews. And obviously the Jews are incredibly upset with the Christians for what they're introducing. The suggestions that they're making about who Jesus really was as the Son of God, and this is costing them greatly. They would not have been welcome anymore in the synagogue. And chances are they would have been alienated from even extended family and people who would have been literally closing doors in their face. They might have been shunned within the business community where they would not be able to make the same kind of profit as everybody else because of what it is that they believed and what it is they held to in Christ and this huge persecution really that they were facing socially, in familial circles, religiously, from their own historical background and their own families. And in the midst of all of this, Jesus has nothing but strength and good things to say to them. And notice the way that he always reveals himself uniquely, right, in each of these letters to them. In that day, I will summon, oh, I'm going to go back here, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. He talks about being holy and true, right? That's the opening in in verse 7 here. These are the the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Every time he has one of these words, the descriptors are unique in each city, and he's holy and true. These are two unique Old Testament character words only used to describe Yahweh. The same adjectives used to describe God are now being used to describe Jesus as he self-discloses who he is. And he is true. This word is the only word of Revelation in each of the seven letters to the seven churches that doesn't take place in Revelation chapter 1 where there's this, this beautiful list of descriptors of the Christ that John sees. This is the only new word of description introduced. And for people who are wondering, can we cling to this? It is true. It is true. And then this weird idea of the key of David. Where on earth does that come from in this opening and closing of doors? Well, as we well know, throughout the book of Revelation, there's this huge drawing on Old Testament texts, and that's where this imagery comes from. Isaiah 20, 20 to 22, In that day I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand authority over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. 
I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Eliakim was the second highest ruling person in the land. He was the representative of the king when he wasn't there. He had the same level of authority when the king wasn't physically present. Jesus is saying, that's, that's, who, that's who I am, right? That's, that's, that's my role. I am the representation of all of this. And he's drawing purposefully on Old Testament imagery to let these new Christians know, you have not departed from God and from the word of God. This is all part of God's plan. You stand inside that story still. And for all of these people who would have experienced some sort of shunning, he wants them to know that you are with the one who is true. You are with the one who is holy. You are with the one who holds the key of David. You are with the one who opens and closes all the opportunities of your life. So don't look at what other people are seeing. Don't look at the closed doors that are physically happening in your community to you. Look at what I can open. Look at who I am because that is the truer truth right now. There are a lot of us here who have experienced places where we sort of feel that because of our Christianity, there are doors in this world that aren't open to us. We might not be able to get the same kind of position in a career. We might not be able to be the same kind of person with the same opportunities if we didn't have it, as if Jesus was slowing us down a little bit. And we would never use that language. We would never say that. But I think we often feel like that. And the encouragement that comes in the middle of this is Jesus reminding them, I am the real reality that is behind everything. Don't look at what is presenting itself right now. Look a little bit deeper. Look a little bit deeper and see what's really going on. Because in the midst of this, though you feel incredibly weak, though you feel like you don't have enough strength to go on, you probably aren't seeing what's really real right now. And Jesus says nothing of critique about this church. This church ended up going on to be a, a sort of a launching post of missions into Asia and beyond. This is a remains from a church in the 7th century in Philadelphia. And you can see how high these pillars ended up getting built. And there's this key line, of course, that happens in verse 8 in this text that talks about this open door. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. This idea of open door kind of really has two possible explanations Number one, open door is an open door to salvation, right? It's an open door to access to Jesus. And we've seen the way he's revealing this to them, telling them, you are inside the story. You're not outside of it. But also, an open door means an opportunity. And here again, he's speaking directly against the historical positioning of the city of Philadelphia. Philadelphia was established to be a launching pad into Asia for the Hellenization of all the peoples out that direction. That was the reason why this city was founded. It was to be an open door. It was to be a launchpad forward for the Hellenization and the spread of Greek culture all the way forward. But Jesus is taking that open door and he's redeeming it. He's changing it. He's changing its meaning. And, and Paul uses language like this all the time when he talks about an open door, when he's talking to churches who lived in this part of the world. I'll give you a couple examples. I know your deeds. He have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Just make sure you understand, nobody else can stop this. Nobody can stop what I'm doing, Jesus says. Paul reflected on this a couple different times. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has been opened to me. And there are many who oppose me. From 2 Corinthians. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me. Again, in Colossians, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. 
Let the irony of that line sink in for a minute. Paul's declaring and admitting he is in chains, he is in prison in this moment, but he's not praying for a physical release, he's praying for an open door for the gospel. He knows that these circumstances of even being confined in a prison cannot dictate the truer truth that is at play and that Christ is reigning and Christ can open doors in each and every situation. This has to be comfort for every believer, for any one of us who've ever struggled, whoever one of us who's ever been in a bleak situation. I am becoming more and more convinced as I read through the book of Revelation that Christianity is a synonym for optimism. That Christianity is is what allows us to be able to see the world with limitless possibilities because the physically presenting problems of the world around us will not have the final say. Does your Christianity equate to being optimistic? Do you look around and regardless of what everybody else is saying about the world around us and regardless of everybody else's fear of what's taking place, that we can still stand in a place of confidence? You can be the smallest, weakest, most insignificant, youngest church, and Jesus is praising you up and down saying, there is all kinds of stuff you can do. If you'll hold on to this, if you will stay in this space, I will show you there is a reality that you cannot see right now. There is so much comfort in this. What are the things that you struggle with in your life right now? Where do you feel weak? Where do you feel powerless? Where do you feel like things are outside of your control? Can you hear Jesus speaking into this situation in the same way he's speaking to these young Christians in Philadelphia? Your size and your spiritual stature does not dictate what will happen tomorrow. Whether or not you feel brilliant does not determine what will happen tomorrow. The one who holds all these things in his hands, the only one who can do this. This morning I was listening to the song, God, I Look to You. And I kept listening to, and I kept hitting rewind and going back to the beginning and listening to the first opening lines again and again. God, I look to you. I won't be overwhelmed. Give me vision to see things like you do. God, I look to you because you're where my help comes from and give me wisdom to know just what to do. It's an extension and a reach beyond oneself. You, every time my little seven-year-old comes to me and he wants to reach something higher up, like on a bookshelf or something else in our house or in a cupboard where I'm keeping food that I don't want him to get, what does he do, right? Like every little kid, they reach up their hands and they're like, like take me to where I can't get on my own. Every time I'm in worship and I'm doing this, I'm, I'm thinking, that's really what I'm doing, right? Take me to where I can't be on my own. Take me where I cannot reach, where I physically cannot get. That is what my Christianity is for. That's what my faith is all about. God, take me to where we cannot go on our own. It's an admittance of surrender. It's an admittance of weakness that just as I am, I don't have enough to pull this off. God, I need you. I've had all kinds of stuff going on, even personally in my life, the last couple months that have brought me to a place where I feel pretty weak. And this text this morning, reading over and over and again and again, was just, it felt like being washed in comfort and in strength. It felt like lifting up the Bible was like going to the gym and exercising my muscles and getting stronger again and again as these words start seeping into me and taking over and confidence begins to change us. I think this is what the word is supposed to do. It's supposed to make truth work its way further and further into us. And I want to be a person that is so optimistic in every situation because I've been saturated and soaked and washed in these truths where I walk into situations and everybody else is afraid and I stand confidently and I have no fear because these words determine who I am and they tell me of a situation that's beyond what everybody else can see. 
I want to be a problem solver unlike anybody else in difficult situations because I know that my God is in control even when everything else betrays or doesn't look like that reality. I want to be in that place and I want to be that for my community and for my family and for the world and I'm realizing it only comes when I come back and I let these truths define me again and again. And I can't get enough like the, like the heavenly creatures before God who just can't get enough eyes. They can't open up wide enough. God, just come in and take over. I don't know where you are today. I have a feeling there's probably a lot of us here who are feeling pretty weak. Can you let these words wash you? Redefine you? Help you look a little bit deeper? To give you vision to see things the way God does? Because he has promises. Beautiful promises that keep coming up in this text for everybody. It's a weird city. It experienced many, many earthquakes, Philadelphia did. And in fact, in the, the year 17 AD, about 50, 60 years before this book would have been written, it was leveled in an earthquake. And they kept rebuilding it in that place because it was in, near incredibly fertile land all around it. And it was supposed to be this launch pad, so it kept getting rebuilt. In fact, Tiberius um, gave them freedom from all of their taxes and funneled a boatload of money into Philadelphia in order for it to be rebuilt. Now that all happened before the church now is really being spoken to in this letter. That's their background. And because, the, because Caesar had, and Tiberius had done so much for them, they renamed Philadelphia Neo-Caesarea. They had renamed themselves in, in, in light of the one who had given them so much. Which is why at the end of this text, Jesus is talking all about a new name. He's like, yeah, you're, people in your city might, might want to rename their place after Caesar because he's the one who's come in. But I'm going to write my name on you. I'm going to give you a new name. And you won't be defined by the things of your own community. You will be defined by the real reality behind all of it. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. This little Christian church, right? All through the New Testament, the, the, the leaders in the Jerusalem church are referred to as the pillars of the church. Jesus is telling them, you don't have to be in Jerusalem to be a pillar for me. You don't have to be in the majority. You don't have to be in a place of strength. I can make you a pillar in the temple of my God. I can be the strength that you need. William Barclay in his commentary on Revelation says it like this, when a person had served the state well, when he had left behind a noble record as a magistrate or a public benefactor or as a priest, the memorial which the city gave him was to erect a pillar in one of their temples with his name inscribed upon it. Philadelphia honored its illustrious sons by putting their names on the pillars on its temples so that all who came to worship might see and remember. This little Christian subgroup that felt like it was out in the margins of this entire city and everything going on there, Jesus is saying they might honor them in their own way. I've got a way of honoring you that they know nothing about. They would do things like this, right? They would represent these people. They would write their names on these pillars. They would do stuff like this so that everybody else could see who come afterwards is who this person was. Jesus is countering the promise of man with an even greater promise of God. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. 
You ever been so overwhelmed by a situation that you sort of like, you feel weak, you feel like it's determining your feeling? What Jesus invites us into is to be so alive in him that we change whatever we are. We become the salt. We become the light. That no matter what the context, no matter how marginalized you are, no matter how insignificant your voice feels, that because you are in Christ, you are part of the more real reality. We need to step outside of our situations. To take our eyes of man out and put our eyes of faith in. And then re-examine where we stand. I'm going to do a little prayer with you guys. I'm going to ask the band to come on up and, and lead us in a, a closing song. Jesus, I come. And um, as they do, I just want to have a little bit of, of time of prayer with you. And if you walked in here today feeling a little bit weak, feeling beat up in some part of life, I'm just going to, I'm going to put you on the spot. I'm going to ask you to stand a minute because we want to pray over you. We want to declare these truths and this strength over you. If you're feeling overwhelmed by your homework, if you're feeling overwhelmed by life's situation, um, just, just go ahead and, and have, stand up right where you're at. And um, this is always, always hard to do because we're asking you to do something right when you're feeling the weakest, which is kind of hard, right? We just want to pray blessing over you. If you're around them, maybe you even want to extend a hand out, a blessing towards them, and, uh, and join me in prayer. God, we look to you. Give us vision to see things like you do. And Father, that includes looking into the mirror so that we may see ourselves aright. And Father, for everyone here today who is feeling weak, who stands in need of a washing of your truth, who feels marginalized in a, in a context they're in or doesn't feel capable to tackle what it is that's in front of them. Father, I pray that every one of them would look to you in this moment it would be able to see in you that which is so far beyond themselves and like a child raising their hands trying to get somewhere where they physically cannot be father i pray that their heart that their mind that their lives would be reaching out their hands towards you in extension that you would be everything that they stand in need of and that you would remind them that there are realities beyond what they currently see that Paul could be in chains and yet pray for an open door and that a church that is tiny and weak and young can be told that it's still a missionary outpost and opportunities are being placed before them beyond what they can see. God, you so often do your best work in the middle of our weakness and for everybody who here today who had the courage to stand just because they're feeling weak, be their God. Fill them up. Wash them with your truth. Cause them to have people stand beside them and encourage them. And Father, in this moment already, may their reality change because the eyes of faith are clarifying their vision. God, we come to you just as we are. No pretense, no pride in our brokenness. We need your strength and we need a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.